Turn to Romans chapter 1. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and that can be arranged. Someone asked me a question the other day. And what was interesting about it is that it was like the third time in two weeks I'd been asked a version of the same question. And the question was, why lay my life down to serve the Lord, Patrick? Because if I serve the Lord, I'm serving God, but I'm also serving his people, and you know how people are. If I'm serving the Lord, I'm serving his people. And the response is going to be ingratitude. The response is going to be hard-heartedness. The response is going to be disappointment. And when I make it through all of that, when I do it well, when I serve faithfully, the reward for serving the Lord will be more to do. The reward for service is more service, which means more people and more hard-heartedness and more disappointment. And what is the point? It's interesting because when someone asks me a question sort of proximate to my study time, it's usually a good bet that the answer is going to be in the weekend's message. And when two or three people are all asking me the same thing leading up to a study, almost always the Lord has something to say about that exact Topic. I know when that happens, God is getting ready to answer in his word. It's, it's the same principle. Qu- quick sidetrack, but it's the same principle. When someone rolls into church with their hair on fire, gotta talk to you, gotta talk to you, gotta talk to you. Gotta, gotta, <laughs> and like, okay, okay, sit in service, listen to Jesus, and, and we'll talk. No, 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 I need to, need to talk now. Have someone else teach for you because you and I, we've got to talk now. No, sit in service. No, but I really need to talk. Okay, but, but first, try to listen. And, and, and when I say that, when someone says that, because we say that, we're not being kind, unkind or insensitive legalistic. No, our point is God knows you're here. He saw you coming. He knew you were going to be here. And if you're willing to listen, odds are there's an answer waiting in his word better than anything that me or the other pastors and elders could come up with. And that's true today. This morning, God answers this question, why do we serve better than I could? Romans 1, we left off last week in verse 17. Paul was quoting from Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. And we talked about how that's really a clean, concise articulation of the gospel. How we accept by faith Jesus' death on the cross as payment for our sins. And when we do, we are made just, justified. It's just as if we never sinned. When we accept Christ's death by faith, we're made just, and so we have eternal life with him. Jesus trades places with us. So having said that, having having reminded us of that, of the gospel, Paul goes on to do something interesting. Paul knows that a diamond shines most brightly, you know this, against a black background. So having just laid the gospel on us, the just shall live by faith, with all of its beauty, all of its magnificence, all of its splendor, he then goes on to say, verse 18, 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. Notice the parallelism. Verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed. Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed. He's drawing a contrast for, what's it for? It's to say, hey, put these ideas next to each other. Verse 17, the light of the gospel. Verse 18, the darkness of sin. Verse 17, here's how we obtain grace. Verse 18, here's how we know we need grace. And this this subject, those two ideas side by side, wrath and grace, Paul is going to dwell on, he's going to expand on, he's going to amplify for the next two chapters. Rest of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, first first half of chapter 3. How God's wrath teaches us our need for grace. We're not going to get back to the gospel until like verse 20 of chapter 3. Which is why I'm going to pause this morning only halfway through verse 18, not even halfway. And in fact, I'm going to back up from where we were. And I'm only going to talk about the first five words. For the wrath of God. That's our text this morning. Because before we talk about how it's revealed, that's where Paul is headed, The wrath of God is revealed, and he's going to tell us where and how and when and for whom. we got to talk about what the wrath of God is, what it means, why it's important. Because if we don't, if we don't just charge ahead, well, the wrath of God this and the wrath of God that and the wrath of God the other, we might end up three or four weeks from now with people saying, I don't know that I buy any of this. I'm not sure the wrath of God is anything. I think it might be nothing. And that's a bad place to end up. You're looking at me skeptically. I know that look. You're saying, come on, Patrick, we know about the wrath of God. It's not hard. What is there to know? God hates sin. Not a hard concept. Let's move on. Okay, I agree it's not a complicated concept. But complicated and hard aren't the same thing. It's not complicated. You're right. But it is hard. It's difficult to talk about. It's hard to wrap our minds around because it's so dark. It's so absolute. And that's a big reason there aren't many messages preached about it. A lot of pastors ignore it or even preach against it. Deny God's wrath is even worth discussing. Reject it as a topic for Sunday morning. Talking about you, Joel Osteen. Patrick, why you got to pick on Joel? Why you call him out like that? He's not here to defend himself. He asks me to. (laughs) Many pastors deny the idea of God's wrath passively. Many, many pastors, many, many churches deny it passively. They just don't talk about it. They just ignore it. They just keep moving past it. Joel Osteen says, I'm not going to talk about it, and here's why. When people ask him, Pastor Joel, how come you don't talk about hell? He says, I don't think people need it. I don't think people want to hear about that. That's not why they come to church. What people need is the power of positivity kind of vibing on my mom's guy, Robert Schuler, right? The hour of power. Some of you remember. The power of positivity. Dale Carnegie dressed up and gone to church. Get past that negative self-talk. Discover the abundant blessings God has for you. The thing is, when we do that, 
God is no longer an eternal judge, is he? Instead, he's a wise and knowing mentor who helps us solve our problems, helps us navigate life and its challenges. And as a result, not just of Joel Osteen's ministry, there's a result of the enormous number of pastors and teachers that ignore the subject, reject the subject, deny the subject. People end up confused. Confused about God's wrath. Are we supposed to believe it? Should we talk? Is it okay to talk about it? Is this outdated? Is this, is this yesterday's news? So, so we've got to invest today to make sure we're on the same page. We have to take this morning to make sure we understand everything Paul is about to tell us. So this morning's outline, we're going to talk about what the wrath of God is. We're going to talk about where our understanding of wrath comes from how we can be sure our understanding isn't outdated, and why the whole conversation matters. So let's go. What is the wrath of God? I, 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 gave, I gave an okay definition a moment ago. God hates sin. It's not a bad start. It's, it's not everything, but, it, but it's a good start. Leon Morris, who's a New Testament scholar from Australia, has a definition that I like. He rounds it out a little bit. He said, a strong and settled opposition to all that is evil arising out of God's own nature. That's his definition of the wrath of God. And you, you can dig into theology textbooks and get more technical than that, but, but that'll work for our purposes this morning. God's wrath is a strong and subtle opposition to all that is evil arising out of his own nature. And the part that we need to pay particular attention to in that definition is the first part are those first two adjectives, strong and settled. Because that's what differentiates God's wrath from wrath the way that we usually think about it. When we usually use the word, oh, Hector came into church today, man, he was all full of wrath. Not really. Last week, but not today. <laughs> when, when we talk about wrath, when we talk about human wrath, so-and-so, oh man, the wrath, that's a wild, emotional out of control, usually self-serving, mostly sinful kind of anger. There's a word for that in the Greek that's thumos. It's the word that we get thermometer from, or thermite, the explosive. That's not the word that Paul uses. That's not the word that Scripture uses. Scripture uses orge, which is not a hot anger. It's a steady, composed, measured anger. Anger. The word is used elsewhere in Greek literature to describe the slow swelling of a fruit in the sun. Picture a tomato in August baking in the hot Kansas sun, and every day it absorbs a little more heat and a little more heat and a little more heat, and if you leave it on the vine sooner or later, it'll actually burst through its skin. That's the idea of God's wrath. Not wild and out of control, measured and calculated, precise and proportionate. Another writer actually uses some of those words. Another writer says the wrath of God is God's precise and controlled response to the rejection of his holiness. It's God who is good looking at people who do willful evil. It's God who is pure looking at someone continuing unrepentantly in sin and saying, yeah, this cannot continue in my presence. This is incompatible with my holiness. 
So that's what pastors and theologians, that's how, that's how we define God's wrath. But where does that understanding come from? We're up to point number two on our outline already. We're hauling today. Where does that understanding come from? It comes from the Bible, obviously, where the word shows up literally hundreds of times. This is not fringe doctrine. This is not out there on the skinny branches. This is core theology. And probably the single clearest place I know to go to see God's wrath expressed, articulated, is Nahum chapter 1, verse 2. The, we read the God, that God is jealous and the Lord avenges. God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Pretty clearly conveys what we're talking about. God is perfect in his holiness. Sin is rejection of that holiness. It's an attack against him. It's a denial, a rejection of him by those created by him, adding insult to injury. We're created to worship and glorify him. When we say, no, I've got another plan, I've got another purpose for my life, one of my own design, that wars with God's holiness. And it cannot be allowed to stand or God ceases to be holy. If the Holy One permits unholiness to stand, it changes who he is. That would be God denying himself. First time we see the word wrath in Scripture is back in Exodus. Exodus 22, Moses in the, is in the middle of delivering the law. Exodus 22, 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. I'm reading from the ESV. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Interesting here, this is the first mention of wrath, and we know that first mentions of things in Scripture are significant. Interesting, the first mention of wrath is not in connection with murderers, rapists, or child molesters, but in connection with those who mistreat widows and orphans. Think about that the next time you're thinking about things. But again, we have a vivid picture of God's response, his dramatic, decisive response to sin. That's the first time the word appears, not the first time the idea shows up. God first speaks of his wrath all the way back, all the way back. Genesis chapter 2. Of the tree of knowledge and good and of evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Not die physically, we understand, die eternally. Sin against a perfect holy God, the penalty is perfect eternal wrath, perfect eternal torment, perfect eternal hell. The point is, from the beginning of creation, we see God in his first dealings with humanity instructing us about wrath. One of the first things he wanted us to know. This is the line. If you cross it, there are consequences. And that instruction continues through the law, continues through the prophets, as we've seen, continues through the Psalms. So we have no reason to be confused. We have no excuse for as long as God has been dealing with us, he's been teaching us about wrath. 
He's been telling us, here's what you need to know about my holiness. Thing is, as long as God has been warning us about wrath, Satan has been whispering in our ear, it's a bunch of hooey. It's not really true. God's lying. And for as long as God has been teaching us about wrath, people have been doubting. And people have been asking, I don't know, Lord. I mean, maybe Satan's got a point because I'm looking around and I don't see your wrath any of the places I expect to see it. Habakkuk 1.13, the prophet expresses what a lot of us have felt. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. That's what you say. That's what you tell us about yourself, God. That your holiness cannot have any dealings with unholiness. Okay, so here's my question. Why do you look at those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Why do the wicked prosper and the innocent suffer so always? Where's your wrath for them? Especially when someone sins against us. There, right, right there, God, did you see? Bring it, Jesus! <laughs> and he doesn't. I'm like, Where, where's your wrath for their sin? I thought your wrath was a thing. I don't see it. It's still there. What we sometimes forget, especially when we're angry, <laughs> while wrath is an attribute of God, it's not his only attribute. It exists alongside, it exists in perfect harmony with mercy, long-suffering, love. What, what, what do we remember from Gail? Gail Irwin, every time he's with us, the Lord God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, loving kindness for thousands, forgiving iniquity, forgiving transgression, forgiving sin. That's who our God is. He is also, keep going, the one who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Wrath is an attribute of God. Crime must be punished. It's not the only attribute of God. They're all always present in perfect harmony, even if we're not seeing them. Psalm 711. God is angry at the wicked every single day. Okay, then why doesn't he wipe them out? <laughs> Especially him. <laughs> then no one would have a chance to repent. If, if, if wrath were the leading edge of God's dealing with us all the time, then no one would ever have a chance to see or experience the fullness of who God is. Our only experience with him would be our first experience with him, which would be wrath. And because we wouldn't know the fullness of God, his glory would be diminished. And that wars with our sensibilities sometimes because we want to see justice done. Donald Gray Barnhouse, longtime pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, told this story. Back when Philadelphia was more rural and there was a church in town that had farmland butting up against it. Well, the farmer who owned that property was an atheist, and he was an outspoken, avowed, angry atheist. 
And it wasn't enough to not just go to church. Every Sunday morning, he would fire up his tractor, he would fire up his thresher, he would fire up whatever farm equipment was appropriate for the season and run it as close to the church as he could get. Wasn't enough to not go. He wanted to interfere with, the, with, with God's word being taught. But he took it one step further. One day he writes a letter to the editor of the local newspaper. And he said, isn't it funny, all of you farmers, all of you people gathering church every Sunday, I don't go. Not only do I not go, I mock you. I defy you. I try to hinder you. And my crop's better than your crop. None of you have property. None of you have farmland that's as productive, that's as fruitful as mine. So what does your God have to say about that? The editor of the newspaper printed the letter, and then he printed his own reply. He said, my God says that he doesn't settle all of his accounts in October. <laughs> Sometimes there's a lag. Doesn't mean that his wrath isn't there. The fact that he doesn't immediately display it means that he's giving us an opportunity to change our mind, to change our heart. He keeps reminding us of his wrath. In fact, at every new chapter in God's dealing with his people, he's careful to provide a reminder of his wrath, a dramatic reminder. The flood, for example, Sodom and Gomorrah, Pharaoh and the Egyptian army drowning in the Red Sea, Nadab and Abihu struck dead for touching the Ark of the Covenant. I could keep going, but you see where I'm going. I think you're picking up what I'm putting down. Consistently through Scripture, every time God begins a new chapter in his dealing with his people, he clearly, dramatically reminds them, this is who I am, haven't changed, still me, still hate sin, still promised to punish the sinner. But I also still love I'm also still merciful. Ezekiel 18.23, I still take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 2 Peter 3.9, I'm still willing that none shall perish, but all would come to repentance. What's he saying? I will judge sin, and I'll remind you of that from time to time, but I'm also going to remind you I'd rather not. Isaiah 28.21, one of my favorite verses, it's precious. We talked about it a few weeks ago in our Wednesday study. Isaiah 28, 21, God says, judgment is my strange work. Translators struggle with that adjective. Strange, alien, peculiar, unusual, awesome. But they all mean the same thing. God's willing to be glorified in his wrath. He would prefer, he would rather be glorified in mercy. And that's good, or none of us would be here. <laughs> Brings up an interesting question, though. We read a lot about God's judgment in the Old Testament. Most of the verses that I've been citing are Old Testament verses. And we see God's wrath in the Old Testament, right? Stoning for this and stoning for that. Genocide prescribed by God. Hey, go wipe out the Canaanites. Men, women, children, all of them. God commits genocide, the flood. Everybody, one family, gone. So is that really the God we worship today? Some would say by the time we get to the New Testament, our consciousness has been expanded. Our understanding of God has evolved. 
It's actually what I was taught in high school. Not Christian high school, just secular high school. Teacher handed out a copy of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards, a sermon that he preached during the Great Awakening in the late 1700s. And I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's long, but it's a, it's a commentary on some verses in Deuteronomy having to do with God's wrath. And he says, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you. God abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath toward you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous snake is in ours. Okay, that's a powerful, poetic description of God's wrath. So the teacher has us read that and then goes on to say, hey, just as society has evolved from autocracy, from divine right absolute monarchy to democracy, so too have we outgrown the picture of God as angry, that Old Testament obsolete limited view of an angry, tyrannical God. We've evolved into worshiping a God who is love. It's a widely held belief. It's a popular perception. So why isn't it correct? Third point on your outline, how do we know that our perspective on God's wrath isn't sadly, tragically outdated? Well, first of all, let's pause and acknowledge that there's a false dichotomy here. The Old Testament God is not always angry all the time. That's not all we ever see of him. The verse that we, we, we read in Exodus, the verse that Gail always reminds us of, things like that show up again and again in the Old Testament. Psalm 103.8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing in mercy. Verses like that again and again. God not just telling us about himself, but all through the Old Testament, God showing us that's who he is. Jonah preaches to the Ninevites. They repent and God withholds judgment. Hagar. Hagar is alone in the desert, and God has mercy and provides for her. Hosea. God, God shows mercy. In fact, every time we touch down in the prophets, it's not long before we notice, hey, wait, even in judgment, God remembers mercy. That's the through line of prophetic scripture. Even in judgment, God remembers mercy. That's the God of the Old Testament. There's plenty of love, is my point. Plenty of love associated with God in the Old Testament. And when we get to the New Testament, whole lot of wrath going on. We're barely in the New Testament, and there's John the Baptist warning about the wrath that's to come. Um, well, Patrick, you see, John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. I get that. So let's talk about Jesus. Jesus speaks of wrath a ton. Matthew 10, 38. Jesus says, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Don't fear people. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's Jesus saying, fear God, fear his wrath. This is the same Jesus who gives us John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes on him will not perish but have everlasting life. 
The same Jesus who gives us that just a few verses later, John 3, 36, says, yeah, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him, stays with him, surrounds him, defines him forever. That's Jesus. Some people try to minimize that, by the way. It's an idea called annihilationism. It's the false teaching, the unbiblical teaching, that God's wrath isn't eternal, that hell isn't real, or if it's real, it's not forever, that the punishment for those who die apart from Christ is that they don't get to enter heaven. They're just wiped from existence, either immediately or after a time. Problem is, that isn't what Jesus says. Jesus talks a lot about wrath, and that isn't what he talks about. Most of what we know about hell, we know from Jesus. Jesus, in the New Testament, is, is, is who rounds out our understanding of wrath. And he says, Matthew 25, 46, and other places, it's eternal. It's forever. It has to be, if you think about it. Otherwise, death would be a reward. If God's wrath isn't eternal, death would be an escape. I get to live my life for me. I get to wallow in sin and unrighteousness. And when I die, I get away with it. That doesn't sound like God. That doesn't sound like perfect justice. No, Jesus taught wrath. Acts 5, beginning of a new dispensation, beginning of the age of grace, we have what we expect, a demonstration of wrath. We have Ananias and Sapphira. They shuck and jibe about, about their faithfulness to give to the church. God strikes them dead. Why? A demonstration of wrath. Why doesn't that happen in every single church that's ever been a church? Because we have that example, and God is hoping that we'll heed it. Again, if God poured down his wrath on everyone who deserved it the moment that they deserved it, well, there wouldn't be any people. <laughs> He demonstrates his wrath once, hoping we'll see it, hoping we'll learn. Acts 5, he demonstrates his wrath. Acts 10, one of a bunch of places we see the apostles preach wrath. Peter and Cornelius' household. Hey, you need to seek forgiveness because God is still in the sin-judging business. You need to seek forgiveness because God's wrath is still waiting for you. And then fast forward all the way to the end of the New Testament. When we get to Revelation, when we get to the day of wrath, that's what Zephaniah calls it. God is judging the world for sin. Who is it that delivers the wrath to the world? Yeah, Revelation 6, people of the earth are crying out, mountains fall on us, hide us, protect us, save us from the wrath of who? The wrath of the Lamb. This evolved Jesus Loving Jesus, meek and mild, is the one who delivers God's holy wrath upon an unbelieving world. And to come full circle, we shouldn't be surprised. That's what the Old Testament told us to expect. Psalm 2, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. Kiss the son, run to him. Believe on him, trust in him, be embraced by him. It's the only way to escape punishment for your sin. 
Don't be confused by God's patience. He'll delay his justice. He'll give us time for his Holy Spirit to call us to repentance. He'll give us room before he takes justice. He will delay his justice, but he will not, will not deny his holiness. God's response to sin is wrath, period. His wrath is certain, period. The only thing that's not certain is who receives it. Will we take it ourselves for our sin, or will Jesus take it for us? That takes us to our final point. Why does this matter? Well, that's the big reason right there. God's wrath is waiting for everyone who denies apart, uh, sorry, who dies apart from Christ. That's why we talk about it. There's a scene in MASH for, you know, old people like me. It's still on in reruns. Thank you. So Hawkeye and BJ and, and whoever is sitting around there talking about the horrors of war. And along comes Frank Burns, and he's listening to this peace-loving diatribe. And Frank Burns, the unthinking, flame-waving guy, says, if it wasn't for war, you wouldn't know what peace was, buddy. For once, Frank is right. I guess the only time in the whole series Frank gets it right. If it wasn't for war, we wouldn't know what peace is. Not really. If it wasn't for God's wrath, we wouldn't understand grace. Not really. If we don't understand the depth of what we're saved from, we can't really understand the height and the magnificence of what we've been saved to. God created us to love and worship him. We chose to love and worship ourselves. Every one of us did. God created us. He gave us life. He asked us to give him glory. And we said, no, this is my life, and I want my own glory. Every one of us did. God says, hey, I'll show you the way. And we said, no, thanks, go in my own way. Every one of us. Every one of us chose to reject God's eternal love. Which means that every one of us earned chose, deserves God's eternal wrath. Except Jesus. Jesus intervened. Jesus chose to drink the cup of God's wrath for us. Chose to let the Father crush him instead of us. Chose to bear in his body the full measure of God's wrath for our sin. For every one of us. And he didn't have to. Oh, yes, he did. God's love compelled him. No, it didn't. That's not what the Bible teaches. He didn't have to. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He chose to. He could have simply let God's wrath take us. He could have stood back and folded his arms and let hell swallow us up. And if he had, he still would have been glorified. Revelation 19, Jesus returns in judgment. White horse, sword, blood everywhere. Cheers and rejoicing in heaven as he does. We sang earlier, glory and praise, power and strength. 
Holy is the Lamb of God. Hallelujah. Where in Scripture do we read those words? It's two places. Once is when the scroll is opened. The second is when Jesus is judging the world for its sin. Jesus is destroying God's enemies, and heaven is cheering as his wrath is poured out on unrepentant sinners. And here's where you have to go with that. That that same cheering and rejoicing in heaven would have resounded. The angels would have been going, yeah! And the four living creatures would have been going, yeah! And, And they would have been going nuts if instead of dying on the cross for me, Jesus just chucked me in the lake of fire. And no one would have been able to say he wasn't right to do that including me. No one would have been able to say that wasn't a precise, measured, fitting response to my rejection of his holiness. And when I'd been there 10,000 years, not bright, shining as the sun, but sitting alone in darkness and torment, even then, I'd have no basis to say, God, you weren't fair. I'd be unable to say, God, this isn't moral. If I were honest, I'd have to say, God, you were never anything but kind to me. Because at the end of the day, I got a choice, same as all of us have a choice. Same choice God gives all of us. C.S. Lewis says it great. At the end of the day, it comes down to one or two things. We either say to God, thy will be done, or God says to us, thy will be done. If we reject God's mercy, God will say to us, have it your way. Thy will be done. You've chosen wrath. And and, and that's the part as we wrap up, that's the part we need to not sugarcoat. Might not be the first thing that we talk about when we talk about the gospel to somebody. Because it is still the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. But we can't leave it out entirely. If we just say, hey, choose God and be with him forever or reject God and be apart from him forever, that's sort of a safe way of of sharing the gospel. But if that's where we stop, we risk someone saying, you know, that's not bad. I'm doing okay without God. I like my life without God. Reject God, be apart apart from him forever? Yeah, you know what? I'll make that deal. We have to keep going, and we have to say, no, you need to understand where this road leads. You might not see it now. You may only be barely beginning to experience it now, but i got to tell you about the wrath that's waiting in the cul-de-sac. If we don't tell people the whole story, we're not giving them the whole gospel. Last week, last weekend... I can't remember where it was in, in service, but one of the songs that, that, that Hector led us in was In Christ Alone. Modern hymn, popular, well-loved, for good reason. It's, it's lyrically fantastic. So here's, here's, here's the story. The Presbyterian Church, Presbyterian USA, the, the, the liberal part of the Presbyterian Church after they split, wanted to include that song in their new hymnal. This was like 2013, I think. But they wanted to change something. 
They went to Keith and Kristen Getty and Stuart Townen, who wrote the song, and said, hey, we love your song. We want to use your song. We just want to tweak it a little bit. That line where you say, on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, that, that, that's kind of depressing. That's, that's, that's dark. Let's change it to, on the cross where Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Wouldn't that be more uplifting? And to their credit, Keith Getty and Stuart Townend said, no, you can't do that. And, and no, you can't do it. We own it. <laughs> but you can't change it. We don't give you permission because if you change that line, it changes what it means. It changes what the gospel says. If you change that line, you take away something we need to be talking about. What does separation from God mean? It means instead of joy everlasting, there's agony unending. We can't shy away from that. You ever think about why, of all of the ways the Redeemer of humanity could be put to death, he was put to death on a cross? And I get that there's a lot of reasons why Jesus came at the time that he came. Roads and language and peace and so forth. But I don't think that the cross is irrelevant to Jesus coming when he came. Because I think that the cross gives us the most vivid picture possible to allow us to glimpse what it is to bear God's wrath. The beating with fists and with feet. The lashing with stone and metal knotted into leather, the thorns driven like fish hooks into his skull, his beard torn out, hung naked, bleeding in shock, in the sun dehydrated, nails driven through his hands and feet, Acidosis happening in his lungs, having to pull himself up by those nails to draw breath for hours and hours. That's God turning back the page just a little bit and allowing us to glimpse wrath. And he wanted us to. He wanted us to look and not turn away. Why? Because the better we understand wrath, the better we can picture it, the more real we allow it to be, the better we understand what Jesus did. And the more fully we understand what our response should be. Paul's going to spend the next 11 chapters on this theme. Today is, is, has been a, a go slow so we can go fast. Because he's going to take 11 chapters to unpack this and amplify it and, and delve into it. But when he's done, when he's done saying, okay, here's, here's the need for grace, wrath. And here's the, 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 the meaning of grace, the cross. When he gets to chapter 12, he's going to tie all of that up in a bow and he's going to lay a therefore on us. Because of all that, he says, because God in his grace delivered us from wrath, therefore, Romans 12, 1, present your bodies to the Lord. That's the answer to the question. Why do we serve? Because God in his grace delivered us from wrath. 
a modern translation I came across. I plead with you to give your lives to God because of all that he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he'll find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. We aren't saved to go back to serving ourselves. That's what got us in the place we needed to be saved from. Makes no sense that God would save us only to have us go back to doing the thing that nailed Jesus to the cross. We've been saved from wrath. For what? To do the thing we were made to do. To do the thing that God always intended for us to do. Love him. Worship him. Serve him with our lives. We need to not turn away from the cross. We need to not once over lightly God's wrath. It's in knowing what we were saved from that we begin to lay hold of everything we're saved to. Lord, thank you for the cross. And we say that not comprehending the wrath that Jesus experienced. But you've given us a glimpse. You've told us why. You've told us what. And thank you seems so small. So, Lord, we call upon your name. Would you deepen our understanding, our appreciation, and our conviction to respond to your sacrifice with sacrifice, to respond to your death by handing over our lives? Lead us, Lord.